0: From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska is just west of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And just before Bill Clinton left the White House, he put key areas off limits to drilling.
1: Some people would argue some of the values of the National Petroleum Reserve, Alaska, are on par or perhaps exceed the biological values of the Arctic Refuge Coastal Plain.
0: Now the Bush administration says the oil in the Petroleum Reserve is needed and the Clinton rules are overprotective of wildlife, also the environment as a casualty of the Civil War in Colombia.
2: We were getting the place organized to work where the pipeline had been broken. Then they started to launch cylinders stuffed with dynamite against the Army. And we're right in between
0: the Army and the guerrillas. Oil and the Civil War in Colombia and more this week on Living on Earth, coming up right after this.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and HeritageAfrica.com.
0: Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The National Petroleum Reserve lies just west of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, on the oil-rich north slope of Alaska. Debates over drilling in the Arctic Refuge have gotten a lot of attention, but little notice has been given to a recent proposal by the Bush administration to sell oil leases on some of the most environmentally sensitive parts of the lesser-known Petroleum Reserve. Joel Southern is a Washington, D.C. correspondent for Alaska Public Radio. He joins me now to talk about the landscape of the Petroleum Reserve and the prospects of increased oil
1: drilling in that area.
0: Joel, first tell me, how was the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska, or NPRA, first set up and why? Well,
1: this area, which is roughly about 23.7 million acres, was first explored by government geologists for its oil and gas potential in the early years of the 20th century. And in 1923, President Warren Harding used an executive order to make it a Naval Petroleum Reserve. It stayed in that status for about 50 years until it was renamed the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska in 1976. So far, how has the reserve lived up to its intended purpose? Well, it just sat there for decades, virtually untouched by the industry, because the type of oil there and the distance it was from Prudhoe Bay made it uneconomic for the industry to touch. And only now are we starting to see the initial production from the leasing that the Clinton administration initiated in 1998, around five years ago.
0: Now, where exactly in this National Petroleum Reserve are the most oil-rich regions? And and how much oil is there? What could this reserve yield?
1: Most of the oil potential is in a crescent of uh, geologically oil-rich structures that run roughly parallel to but inland from the Arctic uh, Ocean coastline. In terms of technically recoverable oil, the range is from 5.9 billion to 13.2 billion barrels with a mean of 9.3 billion barrels.
0: How does that compare with what's uh, at the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Anwar?
1: Well, the mean in Anwar is estimated to be around 10 billion barrels of oil, a range of anywhere from around, I think it's around 5 billion to 16 billion in terms of technically recoverable. So... It's almost on par, but a little bit less. How interested
0: do you think the oil industry is in the National Petroleum Reserve versus Anwar?
1: Well, they haven't been that much interested in it recently because nobody was interested in it for a long time. I think the people just thought uh, not much was going to happen there. However, the area got onto the radar screens of several environmental groups when the Clinton administration began the process of offering leases there about five years ago but they wanted to balance those off with strong protections for especially migratory birds, uh, other animal species, marine mammals, and also Alaska Native subsistence hunting and fishing resources. Uh, There's an area up there in particular called Teshikbuk Lake, which was in the initial planning area that was started back in the Clinton administration. Now the Bush administration wants to go back and look at some of the restrictions and prohibitions that were put on Teshikbuk Lake, possibly modify or even lift some of those restrictions and allow more leasing in that area. And in fact, some people would argue some of the values of the National Petroleum Reserve, Alaska, are on par or perhaps exceed the biological values of the Arctic Refuge coastal plain. Tell me what it looks like. You've
0: been to this National Petroleum Reserve. What do you see?
1: Well, it's, it's a huge, uh, vast plain, that's dotted with lakes and ponds and pools of water. And there are these rivers that just roll across the landscape. Like, uh, at one point, I thought of them as unspooled ribbon. They just wind all over the place. And when you look down on the land itself, you'll see these hexagonal shapes where the permafrost cracks. And it looks like a big tortoise shell pattern uh, all over this coastal plain area. And what action have the
0: oil companies taken in response to the environmental concerns regarding drilling in the petroleum reserve?
1: Well, they've learned that to try to cut down on the flack that they get about developing in in the Arctic areas that they have to do certain things. So most of the exploration, the exploration is now limited to winter months. They use things like ice roads to minimize the impact on the tundra. And also, as you uh, look at the evolution of oil technology on the North Slope, you can see that things are much smaller now than they used to be. They're that way for economic reasons, and they're also there to minimize the environmental impact.
0: So, looking ahead, what kind of leases do you think the Bush administration is contemplating uh, granting here? And how might that affect the environment in the National Petroleum Reserve?
1: I think if the Bush administration does go ahead with leasing, it's going to go with the alternatives that lease as much land as possible. There's one alternative they have now laid out on the table that would essentially lease 100% of this northwest planning area. Another one would, would lease 96% of it, but in that would be 100% of the where there's the most oil and gas potential. This administration is very intent on increasing the oil and gas production from the United States to cut the dependence on foreign imports. They're not going to forfeit a chance to get more oil and gas from the NPRA.
0: Joel Southern is the Washington correspondent for Alaska Public Radio. Joel, thanks for speaking with me today.
1: Thank you, Steve. Good to be with you.
0: Remote sensing conjures up images of satellites snapping pictures from space. But a new sensor network being used by biologists in Maine has a decidedly earthbound feel. Tiny electronic devices can monitor the activities of creatures with the results relayed to scientists miles away. In this case, researchers are getting valuable data from the nesting grounds of the storm petrel, and hopefully these seabirds never notice. Molly Bentley reports from Great Duck Island off the coast of Maine.
4: It's a cool, sunny day, and Alan Mainwaring keeps his eye on the ground. He's winding his way among the black spruce trees on the 250-acre Great Duck Island. Mainwaring's a biologist from the Intel Research Laboratory in Berkeley, California, and he's searching for mounds of excavated dirt, the telltale sign of a bird's nest or burrow underground.
5: Uh, There's actually one over here that looks like a pretty good candidate. So what I'm going to do is have a look inside to see if by chance there's an animal
4: in it. Mainwaring lies on his stomach, his cheek against moss, and reaches into the earth up to his elbow. When he determines that the nest is bird-free, he prepares to deposit a biological sensor in the burrow wall.
5: This small device I have in my hand is called a moat, otherwise known as a wireless sensor. Uh, it has a light sensor, several different types of temperature sensors, an infrared sensor that's capable of detecting the body heat given off from a bird when it's in its nest, and it has a barometric pressure sensor.
4: It's the sort of information that a biologist collects in the field, except that a sensor can go where a biologist can't, like into a small hole in the ground, and the sensor monitors continuously. There are 40 or so sensors set up in this forest, each collecting data on the seabird's nest, which is then relayed to the scientists almost instantly.
5: We found that even the very, very low-power radios that these devices have are capable of transmitting from inside these burrows and underground. And it's also capable of relaying its readings in almost real time to computers on the Internet. And this is quite revolutionary because it means the observer can be really arbitrarily far away from the environment being monitored.
4: The storm petrel is a perfect test case for this technology. Biologists know very little about them. Although they're one of the most common seabirds, petrels are rarely seen over land. When they do return to the island, it's at night, when they zip into their burrows underground.
5: We should probably come back tonight and see if we can spot any of the birds that are using the burrows in this area.
4: It's midnight and Mainwaring is back in the forest, this time with a flashlight and a colleague, Andrew Peterson, who works with Maine's College of the Atlantic. Peterson says sensor networks collect the information that biologists need to protect habitats, while minimizing disturbance to them by human hand or foot. Once the sensors are installed, people can leave the island and the birds in peace. Meanwhile, the sensors help answer basic questions about the birds.
6: What percentage of time the birds spend in their burrows, how many birds are in the burrows at a given time, and exactly what times of day and night they come and go.
5: If you have a large island, perhaps only one particular portion of it is really relevant for the reproduction of a particular species. And this sort of information over time, we hope, allows conservationists to be more specific, in their work
6: we've just had uh, four or five petrels fly over us there went one right there there goes another there goes a third yep and they're blackbirds but they do shine a bit in in this full moon they're graceful flyers eh?
4: As the birds fly into their burrows, the sensors pick up the information, forward it to a laptop, which then relays it cross-country to Berkeley, California.
7: This column is the light sensor.
4: At the Intel lab in Berkeley, Robert Shevchek and Alex Wu go over the data.
7: They should go from 4,000 to zero.
4: They haven't Um, interpreted it yet. That'll come later. In future projects, this kind of biological monitor could be outfitted with any sort of sensor, such as a GPS receiver or a soil sensor to monitor groundwater. According to Mainwaring, this creates the potential for all kinds of environmental monitoring, from birds to whales to farmers' crops.
5: We could get an enormous amount of information about the overall health of this planet you're looking at billions of things becoming networked, billions of computers capable of exchanging information and interacting. And it has the potential to be just as revolutionary, if not more so, than what happened when a modest number of computers formed the primordial Internet.
4: The network is already expanding. There are plans to install sensors in an Oregon vineyard to help with the early detection of mold. Scientists are also hopeful that sensors in trees in the San Jacinto Mountains in Southern California will help them map the wind conditions that lead to forest fires. For Living on Earth, I'm Molly Bentley.
0: Coming up, too much of a good thing. How abundant irrigation may end up putting some farmers out of business in California. First, this environmental health note from Jessica Penny.
8: For centuries, people have believed that drinking tea can be good for you. Recent studies have focused on the beneficial antioxidants in tea, but now scientists in Boston have discovered a new way that tea may improve your health, by bolstering the immune system. The researchers had one group of people drink five cups of tea a day for a month. Another group drank five cups of coffee. The scientists took blood samples from both groups and isolated immune cells to test how they responded to infections. They added molecules associated with certain bacteria and tumor cells to the immune cell samples. Over 60% of the tea drinkers had immune cells that responded quickly by dividing and producing bacteria-killing chemicals. Only 10% of the coffee drinkers showed this response. The researchers think this happens because black and green teas, but not coffee, contain small molecules that are similar to molecules produced by the bacteria and tumor cells. The tea compounds are harmless, but the similarity helps prime human immune cells to recognize harmful bacteria and be ready to fight infection. This is basically the way a vaccine works. In a separate test, the tea drinker cells even responded to a different kind of bacteria that doesn't produce molecules similar to those in teas, indicating that tea might boost the immune system in a variety of ways. The scientists plan to repeat these tests with more volunteers. That's this week's Health Note. I'm Jessica Penny.
0: And you're listening to Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Seventy-five years ago this week, a blind man named Morris Frank traveled from Tennessee to Switzerland to meet a dog. Not just any dog, but Buddy, a female German shepherd who had been trained to be his guide. Mr. Frank received his dog from Dorothy Eustace, a canine trainer for police and rescue work. Ms. Eustace had become interested in guide dogs after visiting a school in Germany that had taught them to help blind war veterans. An article she wrote inspired Mr. Frank to imagine greater independence for blind people everywhere. He and Ms. Eustace agreed to pursue this goal together, starting with the training of Buddy. When Morris Frank took Buddy home, she became the first official guide dog in America. The pair toured the nation together, attracting attention from the public and the press. People were amazed by their ability to navigate busy streets and master other challenges of daily life. Morris Frank was thrilled by his new freedom, and Dorothy Eustace soon opened the first school in the United States for Guide Dogs for the Blind, which she named The Seeing Eye. There are about 7,000 guide dogs working in America today. They are trained to respond to commands, but also to think on their own, to disobey if told to cross the street when a car is coming. Perhaps most difficult of all is learning to ignore other dogs and cats while on duty. And for this week, that's the Living on Earth Almanac. Ever since the landmark book Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, PCBs and dioxins have taken center stage in the debate over environmental toxins. There is less awareness of a similar class of chemicals called PBDEs, increasingly used to make flame retardants. Researchers recently found elevated levels of PBDE in mother's breast milk and fatty tissue in the San Francisco Bay Area. To talk about the findings and possible health effects of PBDE, I'm joined by lead author Mirto Putreus, an environmental biochemist with California's Department of Toxic Substances Control. Also joining me is Tom McDonald, a toxicologist with the California Environmental Protection Agency. Dr. Putreus, let's start with you. What exactly are PBDEs and where are they found?
9: PBDEs are flame retardants. Uh, there are three major industrial formulations of PBDEs and they're called the PENTA, the octa and the Deca. The Penta is used in foam, used in furnishings, uh, car seats. The octa and the Deca are used mostly with the rigid plastics like the computer monitor, the TV, other devices like that so that may prevent any flames and fires.
0: Now you studied three groups of women in the San Francisco Bay Area. Tell me about these three groups and, and why did you choose to study these particular women?
9: The study you're referring to is combining data from three separate epidemiological studies that are still going on. We analyzed uh, tissues from these women, blood or adipose or fatty tissue, for a number of uh, chemicals like the pesticides, PCBs, uh, and PBDEs. And uh, we found very high levels of PBDEs in two of the groups. And the st- most interesting thing was that the levels we found in the, these two groups were the highest we had ever seen, at least 10 times higher than what was reported from Europe or Japan. The other interesting thing is that we didn't find anything of these PBDEs in the third group of women. This was archived blood from the 60s, and we couldn't see the PBDEs. So what we could see in the 90s, we could not see in the 60s. In fact, what generated the interest in PBDEs was a few years back in Sweden results from archived uh, human milk from the 70s all the way to the 90s showed an exponential increase. So PBDs were rising, and at the same samples of Swedish milk, all the other pesticides and dioxins and PCBs were dropping. Now, I should mention that uh, the levels that generated all this interest in Sweden was less than 10 times lower than uh, what we are seeing here in California in the 90s.
0: Tom McDonald, what do these PBDE levels suggest in terms of possible uh, health effects, do you think?
10: There's three primary concerns that we have with respect to health effects, and those include uh, neurodevelopmental changes, meaning learning and memory deficits in children, also uh, thyroid hormone disruption, as well as uh, possibly cancer. The concern basically comes from animal studies We have, for example, three independent laboratories now, one in Sweden, one in Italy, and one here in the United States, that have all shown that either in rats and mice, when you give PBDs to them, either in utero or early after birth, you get permanent changes in behavior and learning and memory. And these are very similar to what we see with the PCBs, which is also a very similar chemical in both structure and activity.
0: What do we know about how these chemicals might have gotten into human fat tissue and blood?
9: Uh, PPDs are what we call persistent biocumulative chemicals. Uh, they get released into the environment, and uh, because they're persistent, they don't break down. They get into the food web, so most of our exposure comes through the diet. Once they're in the body, because they don't metabolize so easily, they stay a long time and they store in the fatty tissues. Now, the interesting thing about PBDEs is is that in addition to the diet, we think that we may be exposed to them through either inhalation or ingestion of dust. PBDEs have been measured in offices and homes, and we think they may be coming from the use of consumer products, particularly foam, which may be friable, coming out through the fabric maybe of a sofa, and then we get exposed to them as well.
0: What regulations exist for this type of flame retardant?
9: There are no regulations in the United States. Uh, Recently, the European Union banned uh, the use of uh, pentane octa. Uh, The DECA is still under investigation, awaiting for a risk assessment to be completed. Uh,
10: Now, what are the advantages to using this class of chemicals as flame retardants? Indeed, it's very important that we do have products that don't burn quickly. California is uh, one state that has very stringent fire safety flame retardancy standards and I think a lot of the consumer products that are produced in the us are made so that they meet California standards for example, the PBDEs are added to plastics and foam sometimes as much as ten percent of the weight of the material and When a plastic or a foam starts to burn, the PBDE actually quenches the fire and slows the burning and saves lives. How much does the U.S. consume of this stuff? Well, current estimates range on the order of somewhere about 75 million pounds per year. So this is quite a high-use chemical. These are such ubiquitous contaminants that uh, I think we're all exposed to low levels of these Tom McDonald is a toxicologist with the California Environmental Protection Agency.
0: Myrto Petraeus is an environmental biochemist with California's Department of Toxic Substances Control. Thank you both for speaking with me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. When the federal government built dams and pipes to carry water from northern California to the baking hot San Joaquin Valley, there was a high risk that intensive irrigation could eventually make the soil salty. Forty years later, some land is so contaminated with salt that it kills crops. The water and the agricultural riches it produced built a powerful farmer's lobby, the Westlands Water District. Farmers there say that if they stop farming the salty land, they should be compensated, and taxpayers could end up paying hundreds of millions of dollars. From member station KQED, Tamara Keith has more.
11: Reliable irrigation water transformed the west side of the San Joaquin Valley, making the desert bloom with dozens of crops, almonds, cotton, tomatoes, garlic, and lettuce. On a recent morning, about 50 farm workers methodically moved through a field of romaine, plucking each head from the ground, removing the outside leaves, and putting the hearts into boxes. This time of year, almost all of the lettuce in the country is grown in the Westlands Water District. But the bounty comes at a cost. Over time, the land is slowly being poisoned by natural salts in the water used to irrigate it. Now farmers like Paul Betancourt are watching their land become less productive.
1: We grew four bales of cotton an acre in this field right here. And on the north 80-acre blocks, we grew two bales of cotton this last year. That's how significant a difference it is.
11: In some spots, you can actually see white salt crystals form a crust on the soil. Irrigation water gushes out of a pipe into Bettencourt's field. It will keep flowing like this for 48 hours until he shuts the pipes off. Betancourt is hoping this land will see him through retirement, but he's worried
1: this soil will eventually become worthless, and the farmers end up paying the price for that because we've invested our lives in these farms uh, with the hope of having uh, drainage service so we could farm them in perpetuity, which is a good idea, and that won't happen now.
11: About two years ago, Westlands Water District officials began pushing for a solution that few would have predicted, retire up to 200,000 acres of salt-contaminated cropland, cutting the farming here by a third. Although too salty for crops, farmers say the land can be restored and could one day provide habitat for endangered species. Growers want the federal government to pay a fair market price for the land, and the bill could come to half a billion dollars or more. Thad Bettner is the Deputy General Manager of Resources for the Westlands Water District.
1: They have the highest crop yields out of anywhere else in the valley. They can grow um, a variety of different crops that can't be grown anywhere else and um, to take this land out of production, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but that's the reality that
6: we have to live with.
11: When the federal government first built the dams and piped in the water, officials knew they'd need to carry away the salty wastewater. The original plan was to send the water into the San Francisco Bay Delta, but because of fears that the delta would be harmed by the water, the drain was never finished. Instead, the brackish water was dumped into the Kesterson Wildlife Refuge in Merced County. Then, 20 years ago, Kesterson became synonymous with environmental disaster. At the time, environmentalist Lloyd Carter was a reporter for United Press International. He was one of the first to cover the story of selenium poisoning at Kesterson from the Westlands drain water.
12: And when I got out of my car, the first thing that overwhelmed me was the sulfurous smell. And then I looked around out onto this pond here to the, to the northwest and I saw hundreds if not thousands of dead birds floating amongst the living birds.
11: Now an environmentalist with the group California Save Our Streams, Carter says it was like a scene straight out of the Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Birds.
12: A marsh uh, is actually a quite noisy place. It's full of life and birds and uh, Kesterson was strangely silent you know, it was quiet because everything was dying.
11: The pools of toxic water were eventually dried out and covered over with dirt to protect the birds. Westland's drain water was shut off. Today, the federal government is still working to provide drainage to the western San Joaquin Valley under a court order. And one possibility would be new evaporation ponds. Environmentalists are skeptical, but officials say they've learned from Kesterson and any new ponds wouldn't harm wildlife. Jason Phillips with the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation is studying the options.
5: Really, there's only three places you can take it. You can take it directly to the Pacific Ocean. You can take it to the Bay Delta, which is the original envisioned disposal location, or keep it within the valley and evaporate it.
11: But each of these options could cost as much as a billion dollars and may create other environmental problems. Meanwhile, a handful of farmers are already getting money to idle their fields. They had sued the government, saying the lack of drainage destroyed their land. Under a settlement reached earlier this year, the farmers will get a $100 million in damages and $40 to retire their land. Like the officials at Westlands, environmentalist Lloyd Carter is pushing for a massive land retirement, though he isn't at all happy about the idea of the government paying for it.
12: This is all to benefit 600 growers. History will show that this was one of the great stupid mistakes of the federal government in pouring literally billions of dollars into a project on lands which should have never been farmed.
11: If the federal government agrees to buy out all the salt-contaminated land, it would be a first. Already, farmers in other parts of the state dealing with water supply problems are beginning to call for land retirement programs of their own. Any deal with Westlands would be precedent-setting, so many eyes are watching. Environmentalists look at land retirement as a chance to return water to the rivers it was diverted from decades ago. But Westlands officials want to keep the water for their remaining acreage. For Living on Earth, I'm Tamara Keith in Fresno County.
0: You're listening to NPR's
3: Living on Earth.
11: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media
3: Foundation. Major contributors include the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Noyce Foundation, dedicated to improving math and science instruction from kindergarten through grade 12 and Bob Williams and Meg Caldwell, honoring NPR's coverage of environmental and natural resource issues, and in support of the NPR Presidents' Council.
0: Many New Yorkers are resigned to the fact that parks and pigeons are an eternal partnership. But Bryant Park in midtown Manhattan is trying out a novel plan to get rid of the winged loiterers and their droppings. Park administrators have called in a team of hawks to scare off the pigeons. Tom Cullen is the raptor specialist who's running the program. Tom, how do you and the hawks on your crew go about getting rid of the pigeons in the park?
6: Basically, the Harris hawk is a bird that's specifically designed to catch ground quarry, things like uh, rodents and squirrels, rabbits. The pigeons don't realize that the particular hawk that I'm using is not well adapted to catch them. And what we're relying on is the instinctive behavior of pigeons to avoid hawk. We're not actually hunting the pigeons, per se, in the park. What we're doing is we're using that natural fear to build the stress level up so that the pigeons basically avoid the area because there's a predator on the prowl.
0: How do you control your hawks?
6: Basically, we use the ancient method of falconry to train the birds. Basically, they're taught to come to us for food and... um, So we control them that way. My birds are trained to follow me like a dog would, except, of course, they follow me from treetop to treetop.
0: So uh, what sort of controls do you use? Uh, Your body, your voice? How how do you do this?
6: A little bit of both. I can get their attention by yelling at them or whistling to them so that they turn their head. But because they're so visually orientated, what I have to do to actually bring them down is show them something, either a lure that's dragged along the ground or actually just a small piece of meat and place it in my gloved hand, and they come down to that.
0: Maybe you could let us hear what it sounds like when you call one of your hawks back to you.
6: Oh, just kind of a... And, uh, you know, you can hear her bells in the background here. Uh, she wears bells so that I can locate her if she were to go down into cover. So you kind of hear a jingle jingle as she follows me along.
0: Uh, what's her name?
6: The one I have on my fist at the moment is called Starbuck.
0: Uh-huh. So does does caffeine in the morning, I take it.
6: Well, they're, they're kind of a dark, chocolatey brown bird with a little bit of uh, kind of reddish shoulders. And uh, I named one of them Mocha, so then I ended up naming another Java. So uh, Starbucks just kind of seemed to fall in line.
0: You're a man who enjoys a good cup of coffee. That's right. You
6: know, if, uh, if these
0: pigeons get moved out of Bryant Park, and then maybe uh, they get moved out of Times Square, and then maybe they get moved out of...
6: Uh well, they can always go to Jersey. That would suit me. (laughs) As long as they are out of Bryant Park, I'm happy. Again, if I leave, it's more than likely they're going to come back in again. So it is a kind of a maintenance program that we're doing here.
0: Tom Cullen is a raptor specialist. He talked to us from Bryant Park in New York. Hey, are you going to fly your birds now?
6: Yes. There we go. Thanks a lot, Tom. Okay.
0: Coming up, oil and war in the tropical heat of Colombia. First, this note on emerging science from Maggie Villager.
13: Everyone knows it's important to protect your skin from the sun. Now, scientists from the United States Department of Agriculture have developed an all-natural way to ward off those damaging rays. Researchers were examining the chemical structure of ferulic acid, an antioxidant that's found in the cell walls of oat and rice bran. They noticed that ferulic acid's structure is remarkably similar to the UV-absorbing chemicals currently used in sunscreens, and they discovered it in fact shared their sun-protective properties. But on its own, ferulic acid would be an impractical sunscreen since it's soluble in water— And no one wants a sunscreen that easily washes or sweats off. So the scientists figured out how to combine soybean oil and ferulic acid to form a molecule that absorbs UV rays and doesn't dissolve in water. They dubbed it soy screen. The product's manufacturing process is environmentally benign since it relies on a low-temperature reaction helped along by an enzyme that can be recycled repeatedly. Another advantage? Soy screen breaks down in the environment and doesn't bioaccumulate like other chemicals currently used as sunscreens. The company licensing soy screen hopes to test market cosmetic products containing the new ingredient by the end of the year. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Maggie Villager.
0: And you're listening to Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. Out on the safaris, writes Isak Denison in Out of Africa, I had seen a herd of buffalo, 129 of them, come out of the morning mist under a copper sky one by one, as if the dark and massive iron-like animals with the mighty horizontally swung horns were not approaching but were being created before my eyes and sent out as they were finished. I had, time after time, watched the progression across the plain of the giraffe in the queer, inimitable, vegetative gracefulness, as if it were not a herd of animals, but a family of rare, long stem speckled, gigantic flowers slowly advancing. I had followed two rhinos on their morning promenade, when they were sniffing and snorting in the air of the dawn, which is so cold that it hurts in the nose and look like two very big angular stones rollicking in the long valley and enjoying life together. Thanks to Heritage Africa, you too can experience the wild as Denison did. Living on Earth is giving away a 15-day trip for two on the ultimate African safari, with visits to several of Africa's most spectacular game preserves, such as Kruger and the Serengeti. For more details about how to win this 15-day African safari, just go to our website, LOE.org. That's www.LOE.org for the trip of a lifetime. For almost four decades, Colombia has been wracked by a civil war that's killed tens of thousands of people and also ravaged the environment. Colombia is a major oil-producing country, with much of that oil going to the United States. But in the last 20 years, millions of barrels of Colombia's oil have ended up in the soil and water. Rebels have been blowing up pipelines that carry oil for foreign companies, most often one jointly operated by the Colombian government and U.S.-based Occidental Petroleum. This pipeline transports 100,000 barrels of oil a day, that is, when it's up and running. Last year alone, attacks shut it down more than two-thirds of the time. A few months ago, the Bush administration ordered special forces into Colombia to train local soldiers to defend the pipeline. In the first of a two-part series on Colombia's civil war and the environment, reporter Angela Swafford traveled to her homeland and has this report.
9: This
7: is the National Control Center of Ecopetrol, Colombia's state oil company. Located on the penthouse of a massive downtown building in Bogotá, the place is a fortress protected with thick security windows and doors. Like NASA mission control engineers, a dozen employees face computer screens, intently monitoring every inch of its 7,500 miles of oil and gas pipelines that run throughout the country. An alarm here means the system has detected a sudden drop in oil pressure engineer, John Garcia, points to a blinking red light on his computer screen.
1: You can see here where the pipe is leaking, between kilometers 81 and 83. So let's inform people over at headquarters so they can start acting on this
14: one.
7: Though it can't be verified yet. Chances are, this leak is actually the result of an attack, one of the many carried out each week by the country's two main leftist rebel groups. The Caño Limón Coveñas pipeline has been attacked about 900 times in its 16-year history, spilling almost 3 million barrels of oil. In the common scale, used to rate oil disasters, that amounts to 14 Exxon Valdezes. Again, engineer John García. Each pipeline is equipped with remotely controlled check valves that close
1: off the broken section of pipe. The trouble is that Colombia's geography is very complicated and the first thing to get polluted are streams and rivers. But if we didn't have these valves, the environmental damage would be a lot worse.
7: Nevertheless, the damage that is done both to the environment and to human lives is dramatic. Those are the words of Colombia's former Minister of the Environment, Juan Maire.
0: I had the <inaudible>
12: I had the opportunity of personally visiting a region where the guerrillas had attacked a pipeline. It was a town of Machuca. The attack on the pipeline resulted in the death by burns of 80 Colombian citizens. And of course, that is another tragedy, another drama of terrorism on our national oil infrastructure. This is why I think the topic of peace has a lot to do with the environment. I see in the future a day when we will be at peace and Colombia will preserve its rich biodiversity. At the moment, what we have are hard times, times of environmental destruction.
7: A helicopter prepares to travel northeast from Bogota towards the Venezuelan border, straight into territory held by the rebel armies known as the FARC and the ELN. On board is an ecopetrol biologist.
14: My name is Álvaro Rueda. I'm a functionary of ecopetrol My name is Álvaro Rueda. I work for Eco Patrol, and we are heading to Banadilla pumping station along the Caño Limón Covenas pipeline in order to see the areas affected by the oil spills resulting from recent terrorist attacks.
7: We take off in a light rain. The helicopter will eventually climb to 3,000 feet, high enough, I'm told, to avoid enemy bullets.
10: Normalmente.
14: As soon as we get notice of an oil spill, we fly over it to determine its location relative to the rivers in order to forecast where the oil will possibly travel. Then we rush back and formulate a contingency plan.
7: After 40 minutes, we begin to pass over undulating mountain ranges covered by thick forests and dramatic jagged peaks. This is an area of Colombia rich in biodiversity. Somewhere down there, the pipeline lies buried a few feet underneath the soil, a failed attempt to hide it from terrorists. Spills here have been especially difficult to clean up, since there is no easy access into this wilderness and the rivers are quick to carry the oil downstream. But geography is not the only obstacle here. Just a couple of days ago, the guerrilla groups announced a step up in violence, declaring that they would attack both military and civilian choppers attempting to land along the pipeline to carry out repairs. As the mountains turn into valleys and the clouds part, I spot a large oil spill—a black insult against the green grass.
14: In este momento estamos viendo una mancha de aproximadamente unos 300 metros. Right now, we are flying over a spill that is about 1,000 by 16,000 feet wide. We have still not been able to land down there because of security reasons. It is a dark spill, very recent. These are areas for yucca and maize crops.
7: Multiple attacks have occurred so close together here. Their spills have merged into one long chain. To compound the devastation, the underground natural aquifer in this region lies very near the surface so oil can easily penetrate it. Already, the spill has reached a field of food crops, and it's heading towards a wide, milky river some 10 miles west, where a small village lies on its bank. The Colombian government estimates that at least 10,000 farmers and fishermen have been affected in the past decade by the pipeline attacks, either through loss of crops, contamination of drinking water and soils, or pollution of fisheries. The station is a dangerous place to live and work. Less than a mile from the pipeline, it has become a field operations center in the middle of wilderness. From here, repair teams are dispatched to damaged portions of the pipeline. The first thing you see when you get off the chopper is a huge section of twisted, blown-up pipe. In another time and place, it could look like a modern art sculpture. But here, it silently announces what this place is about. Company employees move in to greet us Several of them wear bulletproof vests Five small white buildings serve as housing and dining facilities here Most have bunkers inside them, lined with sacks of sand Employees are instructed to dive into them during a guerrilla attack Carlos Baguette is in charge of maintenance and repair here and he has a lot to say about the perils of trying to do his job. He remembers being flown by helicopter a few months ago to a section of the pipeline that had been severely mauled by dynamite, the standard method of attack.
12: See, Yes, it was about 5
2: p.m. when we got there. We were getting the place organized to work where the pipeline had been broken. Then they started to launch cylinders stuffed with dynamite against the army, and we are right in between the army and the guerrillas. But fortunately, nothing happened to us civilians. We had been instructed to lie on the ground facing down and to keep our mouths open so that the explosive wave would not rip us apart.
7: Not exactly a typical day at the office. Guerrillas also plant mines next to the pipelines, so before workers can start repairs, the army must first clear the site, a process that can take days. We pass by destroyed sections of pipeline that now look like huge overcooked pieces of pasta, twisted and bent in a variety of shapes.
12: Mm-hmm.
7: This is a cemetery of the blown up pieces of
2: pipeline. Look, that is because of the impact of dynamite.
12: Look at that other one. It is even pretty. Who
2: knows how many kilos of explosives they use to leave it like that. They always place the dynamite underneath.
7: We enter one of several warehouses filled with equipment used to scoop up oil and repair pipeline.
2: Here we have a piece of equipment that is basically a power unit with rolls that you place on the surface of the river or lake. It has these hydraulic hoses that make the rolls spin and pick up the oil, which is then sent to a portable tank.
7: Baguette also uses suctioning equipment to soak up oil from the ground.
2: Then we treat the soil with lime and slowly keep working on it until it is ready to be planted again. But when the spill takes place during the raining season, the oil on the ground tends to resurface somewhere else carried by the water in the aquifer, affecting places that were not contaminated before.
7: We walk away from the pumping station towards the pipeline. Since the tubes are buried, all I see is a slight change in the color of the grass. The part of the pipeline we're standing on now was attacked last year. The soil is light brown here, and the grass is dead. Ecopetrol biologist Álvaro Rueda.
14: When I kick the soil, you can see how loose it is. The oil that was spilled last year here is underneath, in this very permeable soil. The deposit is still down there. It
7: digs through the sandy topsoil, and almost immediately the dirt turns darker brown. As I kneel down to take a look, I begin to smell oil. There is a small stream about 80 feet from us, and its banks are also stained in brown. Álvaro Rueda remembers the devastation as it happened.
14: Though this is flat terrain, it does have some gradient, so the oil ended up in a stream that feeds a major river called Arauca. We managed to stop the large patch, but we lost many birds, like that kingfisher you see over there. The oil makes sort of a mirror that confuses birds, who mistake it for water. Saving them once they have fallen in oil is extremely difficult. Other species that always die are reptiles, like snakes, insects and amphibians. The vegetation along the river margins ends up totally covered in oil.
7: Ecopetrol estimates that over the years, it has tried to clean up more than 1,200 miles of rivers and 3,700 acres of land throughout the country. But it's impossible to know the full extent of the damage suffered by the plant and animal life here. Because the region is so dangerous, no in-depth scientific studies have been done on that question. Of course, if there were no pipeline attacks, the oil development here would still be controversial. It brings with it its own list of consequences, including air and water pollution, soil erosion and disturbance of wildlife. But to see devastation that has been so purposely inflicted is particularly disturbing. I look to the east towards Venezuela and to the mountains there that are surrounded in mist. Two helicopters appear in the distance like silent dragonflies. They might be carrying the elite U.S. military personnel sent here to help protect these pipelines. Underneath those choppers lies an ecosystem under attack. This is the other often overlooked consequence of the Colombian civil war, an environment whose future depends on a peace that remains tragically elusive. In the Colombian state of Arauca, along the Caño Limón-Coveña's pipeline, I am Angela Swafford for Living on Earth.
0: And for this week, that's Living on Earth. Next week, the second part of our series with Angela Swafford, guerrilla groups in Colombia make their money through the drug trade. The growing and processing of cocoa takes place in the country's most biodiverse region, its Amazonian forest. In this region of the country, there are over 185,000 acres of cocoa crops planted right now. It is estimated that in order to maintain each planted acre, four more acres of forest need to be cleared, so the deforestation is in fact four times more serious. Narco crops and Colombia's Environment, next time on Living on Earth. And right now, for more on this story, including photos and a reporter's notebook, go to our website at LOE.org. That's LOE.org, where you can get the story behind the news. We leave you this week taking a stroll on an African evening. David Dunn recorded these sounds on the outskirts of a Zimbabwe village. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation in cooperation with Harvard University. You can find us at LOE.org. Our staff includes Anna Solomon Greenbaum, Cynthia Graber, Maggie Villiger, and Jennifer Chu, along with Tom Simon, Jessica Penny, Al Avery, Susan Shepard, Carly Ferguson, and Liz Lempert. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. We had help this week from Catherine Lemke, Jenny Cutrero, and Nathan Marcy. Allison Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art, courtesy of Earth Ear. Our technical director is Chris Angles. Ingrid Lobet heads our Western Bureau. Diane Toomey is our science editor. Chris Ballman is the senior producer. And senior editor Eileen Bolinsky produced this week's program. I'm Steve Kerwood, executive producer. Thanks for listening.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, supporting the Living on Earth Network, Living on Earth's expanded Internet service. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Annenberg Foundation. And Tom's of Maine, maker of natural care products and creator of the Rivers Awareness Program to preserve the nation's waterways. Information at participating stores or tomsofmaine.com.
0: This is NPR, National Public Radio.